and that's the only one I know. <laughs> but I'm like, yeah, I'm feeling good as hell. I'm feeling good as hell. My brother, he thinks that my taste in music was my taste in music when he knew me, which is when I was like 15 before he moved away to uni. So he thinks like all I'm into is like Backstreet Boys. No, ska. (laughs) I was a punk. I was hardcore punk. So he's like, do you still listen to like The Offspring and stuff? Like, no, I'm 30. Who's who's ska at 30? (laughs) We wouldn't have gotten along. Yeah. I used to listen to... Classical music. No! I used to listen to goth music. I was a goth. I used to wear the lacy black clothes and I had a parasol. Philippa, (laughs) every reveal about your childhood makes me want to punch you even more. I used to have midnight picnics. I read (laughs) I studied romantic poetry. And then, after becoming a lecturer... Marking used to make me so angry yeah. that I was like, I just, I, I need to listen to hipster acoustic music now. Yeah. And that's how I became a fan of Bon Iver. <laughs> People ask me what my style of music is as well. I was like, I don't know. I, I couldn't tell you. I'm not trying to be hipster. It's just like, I just like so much eclectic shit that I can't really gather it all together and say. I've kind of become one of those people who doesn't particularly like music. Same. Yeah, it's like, I couldn't tell you. Sometimes I like really dancey music too. And then they ask me and I'm like, music, uh, it's such a thing humans like and I also do. And songs, I don't know any song. I know no music, no music. Because when someone puts you on the spot, you're just like, I don't know. I don't know a single song. I don't know a single damn song in the world. I once had my favorite English lecturer in the world who I really, really admired and Mm. kind of wanted to be ask me when I was in first year what I enjoyed to read. And I was like, no, I I need to name a single book. I can't think of a single (laughs) fucking book. Treasure Island. Nope. Just gone from my mind. There's nothing. (laughs) I just squeaked out Jane Austen and then ran away. I was... I never recovered. And Jane Austen's no one's favourite. No, she is not. Come on. I mean, really, what is I she? I mean, really. Uh, welcome to Everything's Awful Forever. Turns out when you hit 30, music loses its ability to make you a person. <laughs> it's true. When I was a teenager, though, I was listening to fucking Blink-182 or Jimmy Eat World, and I'm like, yeah, it just takes some time. Little girl, you're in the middle of the ride, man. It meant so much to you. And now I listen to music now, and I'm Jessica Byrne, and I'm dead inside. I'm Philippa Evans, and I remember being 11 years old listening to Evanescence going, it's like she knows me. It's like she, this song is about me. <laughs> oh, listening to that and being like, it me. It me. It me. So what's not me is facts that Philippa's going to tell me. <laughs> it not Segway. <laughs> Seamless. <laughs> we were talking about how we fucking hate music for let me take, take the timestamp. Precisely 10 minutes. <laughs> there is a band called the Diablo Swing Orchestra who play yes. like metal yes. bass swing. Yes, they do. Have, have you heard them? And they're amazing. They're great, Hell aren't yeah. they? I love them. Yeah, fuck. We so. have something in common. Oh my god. <laughs> Wait, it's, it's like I'm 20 again and making friends with the people who listen to the music that I listen to. Yeah, you to. got like, this is how you make friends when you're young. I um, finally like you now, Jess. Oh my god, that's amazing. That's, that's, that's just not there for me, but I'm so glad oh, you like me. That's so cool. More bands. That's, that's so cool. That's so cool. <laughs> okay. No. So, no, we're doing don't. it. We're doing it. We're uh, doing it. Okay, I'm excited. It's good. It's- this is this is the final episode, it, Jess. Is it? This is the last Bedlam episode. It, is it though? I'm done. Is I'm done that? after this. Are you sure? I thought this was going to be a two-parter. Welcome <sighs> to episode four. Uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> I am excited. I'm just my like I've had a bad time recently, so I'm just tired. So You're just I, tired. I am actually excited. Let me soothe you with. My dulcet tones and stories of the abuse of the mentally ill. Oh yeah, that's soothing already, yeah. So over the last two episodes, we were looking first at Bedlam's rapid decline and later at the rise of more compassionate care for the insane in New York. I get really confused. I don't know about you, so... Right. I'm gonna do, like, a thing. 
where we catch ourselves up in time so that we know what year we're in. Do a recap, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Not so much as a recap, it's just what year is this? What's going on? (laughs) Because I need to ask that question often and not just when we're recording. Yes. I did say it was 2012, my last recorded episode. (laughs) You did. I just wish it was. So when we were last at Bethlehem or Bedlam, they were preparing to move to the less glamorous St. George's fields, little suspecting that a Quaker-led reformation in York was going to teach them the true meaning of the word bedlam, Mm -hmm. which is a threat that I'm now going to make at every available opportunity. I'll teach you the true meaning of bedlam. And then people will be like, yes, please, what does that mean? Like, oh yeah, I'm really. You, 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 you say you run a history or... podcast? And we'll be like, oh, we've got a fucking history podcast. It's got like 15 episodes on it. <laughs> so remember that in 1810, the Bethlehem governors held a competition for the design of the new hospital. And in 1812, they started laying down the foundations of the new building. The Bethlehem governors had also agreed to build a criminal ward because money. Mm-hmm. Although this plan wouldn't be set in motion until 1814, so who gives a shit? Meanwhile, just a year before, um, 18. 13, the Quakers in York had taken control over the York Asylum and exposed its abuses, cruelties, and mad management. I think I meant to write bad management, but mad I got madness on the brain. I like that. Showing the world just how those deemed mad were really being treated. So William Tuke had triumphed over the York Asylum, but his grandson, Samuel Tuke, wanted to bring their new innovative methods that they discovered in the process to the rest of the world. So William Tuke was like, that's bad. I'm going to make my own retreat. Mm. And With then... blackjack and hookers. Yes, that's what cures everything. <laughs> like my old grandmother used to always say, there's no ill that can't be cured. With blackjack and, and hookers. hookers. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Sorry, Gran. Sorry, Gran. <laughs> kind of listening to it and like, what? William Tuke founded the York Asylum, and his son Henry and his son Samuel wanted to spread the word. And the rest of the world was ready to listen, especially after the investigation into the York Asylum, where people were basically kept in basements. Mm, in the, gr- the granny hall, as I like to call it. <laughs> the granny room. Yeah. As my old granny. <laughs> Every woman needs a granny hall. <laughs> In particular, a London Quaker called Edward Wakefield decided that it was necessary for all London asylums, and Bedlam in particular, to be subjected to similar investigations. Doesn't Wakefield sound like the hero of a Netflix series? Yeah, I also like that he's Wakefield the Quaker. I always, I, I hope he was Waker. When you Waker. said it, I was excited. Like, Waker the Quaker? Oh, Wakefield the Quakefield, that's not as good. There was just one problem, a small problem with Wakefield's plan. Namely, Bedlam didn't like it. Oh dear. They hadn't managed to hide over a century of abuse just to be foiled by one meddling Quaker. <laughs> Waker? Field? What exactly is a Quaker as well? It's a form of Christianity. Yeah, yeah. But I don't understand the different denominations of Christianity. So the thing about the Quakers. Yes. They are part of a religious society called the Religious Society of Friends, which I think is nice. The Religious Society of Friends. (laughs) And they are a Christian movement that believe that everybody has this inner light, which is your... Like a sense of Christ working in your soul. So it's a very personal relationship. Yeah. So they are against church orthodoxy, which sets it oh. against things like Catholicism. Yeah. And like all formal ways of worshipping. Hmm. They're just kind of cool, unless there's yeah, something... Yeah, they sound kind of cool. But for the most part, I know that they were very against slavery. Yeah. And in South Africa, they were actually very against apartheid. Oh. So... They seem pretty cool. When I was younger, I was interested in how different faiths worshipped. Mm. So I went to a lot of different places. Like I went to mosque and I went to like Catholic church, the cathedral. Yes. I went to an Anglican service once. That was weird. And we also had a Quaker group in the town in which I lived, Grahamstown. And I don't know if they were, if they did what quote-unquote normal Quakers do, but we just all sat in a circle of chairs Mm. and kind of closed our eyes, and if one person felt moved by the spirit to speak, they would speak. And it was nice. It was fun. It was interesting. Well, the Quakers did also make Quaker oats, so... Good. Yes, people like Quaker oats. So we were on (laughs) Quaker... Yes. Quakers are good. Oats are good. (laughs) So (laughs) Wakefield was like, I want to investigate all the mental asylums in England. Mm. And Bedlam was like, nah. Nah. No, thank you. I said good day, sir. I said good day. Good day. 
Kutisa. So Wakefield was like, yeah, well, I'm gonna, though. And <laughs> knock, 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 please let me in. I'd like to inspect the facilities. But no one's allowed in, so... No, the I mean, doors are shut. Yeah. They reminded Wakefield that no one was allowed to visit unless a governor went with them. Okay. So Wakefield found one. <laughs> a man called Cox. <laughs> he just... Governor! And someone turns around like, yeah? Oi, mate, governor! So, oh, you, come on, governor! <laughs> Wakefield and Cox showed up in April 1914, and the steward of Bedlam, Peter Avalor... Avalor? Avalor. You're learning French, dude. I am. Avalor. <laughs> he had been pre-warned of the situation, and he was ready to make life difficult for Wakefield. Hmm. Cox was a fat load of help as well. Shortly, <laughs> shortly after entering the men's gallery, the sights and smells proved to be too much for him, yeah. and he presumably had a fainting fit that would put a Jane Austen heroine to shame. Classic Cox. He was like, Minerves! <laughs> Get the smelling salts! I'm going to have an episode! Not the title, The Vipers! The Vipers? <laughs> he was taken back to the steward's room, presumably to the fainting couch. Oh. I want one. And he was happy for Wakefield to explore without him. Go on without me. <laughs> Leave me. Fetch me the Rangoon. The crab Rangoon. <laughs> and he even gave Wakefield a signed note to that effect. Like a note from the doctor. I mean, like, I'm allowed to be here because he said so. The, the governor said so. But the steward, Avalor, was having none of it. Oh. He was like, Saz, but we're taking this literally. No governor, no explore. Hmm. And when Wakefield was like, fine, please give me a list of the other governors so that I can find one of them who is less of a wilting violet. <laughs> and Avalois was like, no, no, because bureaucracy. Because of all the reasons. Because that would not pass data protection. Yeah, the, the DPA. It's people's names. It's the European Union. I mean, we should get out of this. We can make our own laws or something. One day. One day, One maybe. Day. I don't know. But not now, so get out. So Wakefield left. But he wasn't giving up that easily. <laughs> he came back a week later with another governor. Yay! <laughs> One who was like a brick fucking shit. I was like, Ugh, I'm the governor. <laughs> I breathe in bad smells for breakfast. <laughs> along with my Quaker oats. I'm the juggernaut, bitch. And five other important people, including one minister of parliament. I like that he's got spares, just in case one does faint. He brings in his, his party. Yes, yeah, entourage. So the group came across a number of signs of poor treatment. Patients wearing next to nothing. Many people handcuffed to a wall. Mm. No segregation of violent and non-violent patients, which led to a number of inmates being attacked. And in fact, while they were there, one violent patient attacked a non-violent man and the keeper was like yep <sighs> just a bad day for them I guess just it's see this you isn't set them off this isn't representative of us it's just a bad day <laughs> <laughs> So the high number of patients who were restrained and the inability of the staff to prevent attacks was due to the fact that for every 70 patients, there were only three members of staff. Oh, wow. You can't even run a classroom that way. God, no, that's awful. And then Wakefield came across an inmate called James Norris. He was 55 years old and he'd been an inmate for about 14 years, having once served as an American Marine. The ways in which he was restrained looked comically grotesque and I've done my best to understand how it worked yeah. so that I may describe it to you. Yes, please. It just, it feels excessive. Okay. So he was fastened by a long chain that the asylum keeper could pull back on. Mm. So the chain went through the wall. Yeah. And the asylum keeper could yank on the chain to bring him closer to the wall. There was an iron ring around his neck that was attached to an upright iron bar that was about six feet high and also attached to the wall. So a vertical chain to the wall. Yeah. A strong iron bar was riveted around his body, which enclosed his arms and kept them firmly against his sides. And two similar iron bars were attached to his shoulders, which themselves were connected to the waist bar and the iron ring that was on his neck. And all of the chains were kept so short that he couldn't really move far from his bed. He just had to lie down or sit there. So was he the juggernaut? <laughs> he might have been it just seemed very wrong because he was this emaciated man who'd been wearing these chains for so long that he just wasn't able to move so all of his muscles had atrophied oh wow he didn't seem 
insane. He talked to Wakefield very rationally, and he mentioned that he'd been confined to a lying down position for the last 10 years. (gasps) And so it was quite difficult for him to sit up. (gasps) Wakefield left the asylum going, I said good day, sir! And the keeper, the steward, Avalon, was like, at least that is done. I don't don't know that he was French, but he is now. He is now, and I like it. I like the character voice, I like the characterization, it's good. But Wakefield came back to the asylum, this time with more important friends (laughs) that he'd been keeping in reserve. Bedlam, they they understood that Wakefield was going to keep coming back, but they didn't have the money or really the motivation to make improvements to everything that Wakefield had seen, especially because they had a big move approaching. They're not going to fix what's broken. They're not going to spend money on a building that they're going to be leaving. Yeah. Who cares that the prison, the prisoners, who cares that the inmates have been sleeping in the cold and in their piss-soaked straw for years? (laughs) But they did remove the excessive chains from James Norris and they were like, there, you see, you see, he's fine. Look at him. Stand up a bit. Nope. Okay, sit. Sit. Sitting down. Fine, good. But this wasn't enough. Wakefield wrote to newspapers, called on the aid of influential figures, and started a public outcry. Oh my god, he did a call them out on Twitter. He did. (laughs) At Bedlam. And some of the people who got angry were the actual governors of Bedlam because they had no idea what, what had been going on this whole time because they're not going to go to the smelly hospital. So they were like, what? What? <laughs> governors of Bedlam and they don't ever fucking go. And they're like, hey, Bedlam's shit. And they're like, eh? So some of them were like sleeper agents that were secretly reformers. <laughs> so Bedlam was like, okay, fine, we need to do something. Mm. We need to pacify Waitfield. I know, we'll start our own investigation into ourselves. Okay, yes. So they elected a team of 24 governors who were all assembled, and they interviewed the members of staff going, just what the place is going on, Higgins? What's, what's been going on here? And oh, a mo- Higgins? <laughs> Higgins? What did Higgins do? Greg! Fucking <laughs> hell. Greg Higgins. Greg Higgins? Is that his name? Yes. Oh my god. So among those interviewed was John Haslam, the apothecary that we discussed in our episode Back to Bedlam. Mm-hmm. He was the educated one who believed that beating was maybe, you know, not Bad. the best. Yeah. So he was asked in particular about James Norris. And his explanation was satisfactory to the governors. James Norris, he said, was savage in his violence when it came over him. He tried to slash a keeper with a knife. He'd once bitten off an inmate's finger. He regularly tried to murder staff and inmates and could easily slip out of handcuffs and normal restraints because he had freak hands where the bones were different sizes. And although freak hands, that's freak the medical hands. term. And in fact, later on, in a different examination, he talked about how once James Norris had saved all the fat from his meals <gasps> secretly, oh. and then smeared it all over the floor and called Haslam, pretending it was an emergency. And when Haslam came in, he kind of pratfalled, whooped <laughs> on the fat-covered floors, and all of the balls flew into his face. So a criminal mastermind. That's genius. I thought you were going to say he kept all the fat from his meals and ate it in the bath. I think that you could learn from him, I think I'll smear fat everywhere. Just take those pork chops out your pockets and smear it on the floor. Right now? Right now. Okay, I'm doing it. People knew with Norris that something had to be done, and Haslam, ever the intelligent man, had once suggested giving Norris a double cell so there'd be, like, bars in between so that he could be confined oh, in... Oh, like an airlock when you had to Yes, yes, right. exactly. So that he could be moved from one part of his cell to the other without anybody being endangered. But the governors at the time were like, no, this is too expensive. <laughs> the more cost-conscious approach of five million chains was introduced. And it, was, it wasn't even Haslam's idea. One of the governors had been inspired by a similar contraption that he'd seen in Newgate Prison. And they might have even just bought that same contraption and used it. So the Bethlehem Investigative Committee were like, well, this seems all very above board. And they cleared the hospital of abuse and said that they were happy with the way that it was run. Of course. Yes. And there we go. And that's the end. Dun, end of the dun. episode. Everyone Thank was you. happy. Goodbye. Goodbye. Da, 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 da. But Wakefield... 
And the public decided that this sounded like a suspicious cover-up. <laughs> and the madhouse reform movement continued to grow. Bedlam's cause was not helped by an MP called George Rose, who'd always been interested in the plight of the poor and was therefore very unpopular in Parliament. Nobody, nobody liked him. People don't care about the poor? Not the MPs. This is upsetting and confusing. Uh, just, uh, he thought they were cool and everyone was like, George. No. George, he had humble origins himself, oh. so <laughs> maybe that might have helped things along. <laughs> but Rose's time had come. He demanded new legislation concerning the treatment of the insane and the transparency of mental institutions. And again, I think this would make a pretty cool Netflix series. <laughs> You've got the evil bedlam governors fighting for their right to abuse inmates in peace, while the unpopular MP, probably played by Colin Firth, <laughs> joins forces with the Quaker Wakefield, played by Mads Mikkelsen. Uh, uh, it would be yay. to defeat corruption and cruelty through effective legislation. I mean, don't you feel like Mads Mikkelsen's the evil one? I think that's Russell Crowe. Or Nicolas Cage. Yeah, okay. Born for the role. I'm into it, yes. I don't know who would play the evil governors. Probably those slimy actors, like the one who plays Wormtongue in Harry Potter. Wormtail? Wormtail. Yeah, he's very good. I don't know his name, but yes. Neither do I. But there's also the actor who plays Slughorn. I don't know his name. I just think of them as the evil no, yeah, actors. Like, they're like the austere British actors that are in everything because we have two actors. So and they're always them. like, with their, so pompous and rich. <laughs> with their plummy accents yeah. and strange speech disfigurements, which might be the British accent. I'm not sure. <laughs> Yes. I struggle yes, to I understand any of you. So, the new Madhouse bill in this Netflix series that we're, that we're going to create, because we don't have Don't anyone else do it. This is copyright. This is copyright right now, so don't... Don't. 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 So the Madhouse bill that George Rose is proposing passes its third reading in Parliament mm. before moving to the House of Lords series finale. Then there's a sudden turn of events <laughs> when the disgraced head of the York Asylum, Charles Best, tries to fight against them. He comes in with his northern accent and he goes, bad guys stick together. And he starts <laughs> speaking out against George Rose. But then, oh. but then... Oh. Godfrey Higgins, <gasps> Higgins, who had led the investigation in the York Asylum, he was the one that found the basement full of naked old women, mm. the one who'd sneakily stolen the keys that yes. allowed him to open the yes, door. Yes, 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 yes. He gives a moving speech to the House of Lords, and then it's the summer break, and everything ceases to a halt because yeah, because of government and break <laughs> for season two. <laughs> like this, what a shocking turn of events! See you in three weeks. <laughs> And that's when we have time to plan season two. During the summer break, Bedlam tried to do some damage control. <laughs> so certain members of staff were fired and replaced with less experienced but more humane people. So they'd go, do you know anything about mental health, my good fellow? And they go, no. They go, well, do you think that people should be left naked in the icy cold? Not. Really? Hire that man and give him a raise! What a genius! Marvellous! paragon of his age! You fit in with the company values of not chaining people in the icy cold. <laughs> this is a multiple choice question. So when you see a, 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 like a patient, do you beat them, spit on them, <laughs> or don't do any of those things? And the answer is... See, you don't, you're hired, you're a genius, full well marks, get an award, in you come. This led to the introduction of some pretty crazy ideas. What? Like giving the inmates clothes. I hate this. And not chaining all of them up. No. During this time, James Norris, the violent and cruelly restrained inmate, died Aww. in February 1815. Aww. Apparently of tuberculosis. Funny how that should happen. Ah, oh, Jim. After 14 long years of imprisonment. Jim! Funny how he should suddenly just die. Suddenly die. Well, you know, he might be used as a weapon against Bedlam. Yeah. As a shining example of their cruelty and yeah. inhumanity. Funny that he should die. Yeah. Was there a huge life insurance policy taken out on him as well? Maybe. Yeah. Funny how they could suddenly afford the new sauna yeah. for the asylum. Yeah, for the staff, not for the people. <laughs> 
So with no Norris to upset anyone and upcoming improvements to sanitation and comfort in the new Bedlam in St. George's Field, which was being built, there's no reason to kick up a fuss, was there? No need for a special investigation. Mm. It's fine. Mm. Nope. In April 1815, it was decided that a select committee would investigate Bedlam and the state of madhouses in England. Mm. So a time of reckoning had come for Bedlam. The select committee who would investigate Bedlam were composed of prominent reformers, and they were out for blood. The issues that they chose as their main focus were the treatment of two prominent inmates, James Norris and James Tilly Matthews, he of the heirloom fueled by bad smells, Yay. who had submitted a design for the new hospital. We discussed him in the episode Back to Bedlam. The select committee also decided to focus on the literal coldness of the building and the outdated methods used by Monroe, such as bleedings and purgatives. While the investigation did not go well for Bedlam, the two individuals that suffered the most were John Haslam and Thomas Monroe the apothecary and the physician. Monroe's investigation or interrogation was just a disaster. He consistently placed himself in a bad light and tried to place the blame on everybody whose name wasn't Thomas Monroe. <laughs> he blamed Haslam for the ancient cures used in Bedlam and blamed him as well for the number of people placed in irons. When the committee questioned him further on this, he said, I have nothing in the world to do with irons. I never gave an order for a patient to be put into irons in the course of my life. Irons? What's irons? <laughs> I mean, it's women use them. <laughs> Why are you flattened clothes? I don't know. Shut up. Sh you use irons. You're an iron. Fuck you. When asked if he had any objections to irons, he stated, They are fit only for pauper lunatics. If a gentleman... <laughs> if a gentleman was put into irons, he would not like it. <laughs> <laughs> he would... Not like it. Mother of the, the Rangoon and the Irons. I don't want them. So at that point, everybody went, oof, yeah, oof. That's an oof from me. Is it an oof from you? You get an oof? That's an oof from me, an dog. Oof from all of us? Yeah, it's a big oof. Haslam was actually brought in several times. And at first, he did brilliantly. He stuck to facts. He defended his practices. And remember, he was actually one of the most intelligent and compassionate people in the institution. So mm. for the most part, he did well. Yeah. But unfortunately for him, other staff members had reported repeated gossip about him. Oh. He was made out to be the real authority behind all the cruel practices of Bedlam. And I'm not saying that he was blameless. Certain episodes came to light. For example, he may not have reported a severe case regarding a female lunatic to Monroe, and the woman ended up dying. Mm. But we don't know that this is true, because a number of the people who were examined, including the person who said that story about him, were the recent hires. So they hadn't oh, been there. They were yeah. just repeating gossip. And to be fair to Haslam, even if he had reported it to Monroe, Monroe would have ordered bleedings and purgatives. So and would have yelled more about iron. <laughs> yes. Are they a pauper? <laughs> Put them in iron. They like it. Is he rich? Don't like it. It's very simple. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I have to tell you day in, day out, Popper like it, don't like it. It's this, easy. This is why I have to run everything. <laughs> I'm surrounded by idiots. Oh, oh my, my soul. And now he breaks into song about killing King Mufasa. <laughs> Be prepared. Oh, dear. And... <laughs> Also counting against Haslam was the fact that some notes written by the inmates James Tilly Matthews, who is now dead, would suggest possible malpractice on Haslam's part. I like these two guys, the one really weird person with their heirloom conspiracy theory, the other, <laughs> the doctor, both furiously writing notes about each other to prove who was insane and who wasn't. Oh god, I just love that. I think my favourite thing about the fart machine is that he called it the heirloom. <laughs> the it's heirloom. just so dramatic. And James Tilly Matthews is like, well, I designed a mental institution. And Haslam is like, well, I run one. <laughs> Cop. <laughs> oh, Tilly Matthews. So he got revenge beyond the grave. Mm. But I do still sympathise with Haslam because the fault lay mainly with the governors, whose neglect and secrecy did the hospital no favours. And with Monroe, who used his position to make a profit while never really caring about anyone. Unless they were a gentleman and didn't like chains. <laughs> 
At the end of the select committee's investigation, Bedlam didn't come out well, and a number of staff members, Monroe and Haslam especially, looked like they may be out of a job. But before we go on to that, we have another problematic place of work that requires some interrogating. Shall we head to the workhouse? Let's go. I need to see if the orphans have learned to backflip yet. At least, the only workers that we abuse in the workplace are ourselves, and by abuse I'm mostly talking about my liver. But have you heard, Jess? Oh. The most recent news? Yeah. It's absolutely shocking. Oh, tell me. Scandalous, Oh, I'm so excited. (laughs) There's cult activity afoot right here in Edinburgh, led by Sir Alan Ward. Oh my lord. (laughs) Oh my lord, it's Alan Lord. Oh my lord, it's Alan Ward. Alan Ward. There we go, I'm Lord too many times. (laughs) So it all started a couple of weeks ago when Alan attended a few theosophy meetings down in London. It was all very convincing. Lectures on fairies, visitors from other realms, reincarnation. Helena Blavatsky herself was there and she spoke marvellously and with erudition. Now, Sir Alan was quite convinced by all of this and we can't blame him. William Yates, Arthur Conan Doyle, they were also quite enchanted by the movement. Hashtag fairies are real. Alan's friends and family, though, thought otherwise, and had him committed to the nearest private asylum until he started making sense again. <laughs> they kind of went, Alan, shall we go for a walk? Do you want to go for a walk, Alan, dear? And then they they went along and they were like, ooh, what's this place? Let's come inside. Put him in! Let's lock, lock the door! Sparta, kick him into the door. Exactly. <laughs> But they underestimated Alan, who managed to break out of the madhouse and flee to Edinburgh Uh, by train, uh, where he's proved quite the charismatic cult leader. Nearly a hundred sensible Scots have been persuaded by his fevered and impassioned speeches. uh, So, Alan, thank you very much for your support, and we hope that you'll preach the gospel of our podcast as you lead your new cult to greatness. Yes. And if our other listeners want us to drag their respectable names through the mud and soot of insidious rumour, consider signing up to our Patreon. We need the money and you need people whispering about you and then looking away in fear as you approach. Almost as good as the eye. We have lots of extra audio content for patrons as well. So come take a look. You can find us on patreon.com forward slash awful forever podcast or you can chat to us on our social medias at awful forever pod on twitter at awful forever podcast on instagram so let's close the doors and our backflipping orphans that's right well done orphans well done keep it going keep it going we'll make a circus of you yet it's side hustle work house <laughs> day circus at night you don't get to go home now you live here beds no none Just of sleep them. upon each other just pick the cushiest one sleep on that one and then we take it in turns it's good now get back to work <laughs> you'd be great i'd work for you i do work can for i be you. dressed in like full leather as well just be like a, do- full like a dominatrix just like a corset and just rock in with like huge heels and they're just like work as long as i can have a top hat and suspenders we're good oh no but now i want that what's too late dibs oh shit okay wait, <laughs> one day i'll be the dominatrix the next day a 20s charlatan Done. Done and dusted. Let's deal. So, while all of this was going on, Bedlam had been preparing for its move to St. George's Fields. And on August 24th, 1815, the staff and 122 surviving inmates Uh were transported there. Apparently without incident. The new building looked impressive. It was four stories high and 570 feet long. Oh, wow. I need beer. (gasps) (laughs) That wasn't really a natural pause. You were just like, no, no more reading. I'm drinking. (laughs) Just like, and it was, I'm describing a fucking building. I need some beer. (laughs) I'm fucking sick of architecture. It was big. It was a building. It looked like a building. No no more of this. So it was imposing, but it was much less ornate than the Moorfields building. Yeah. And certainly no st- terrifying statuary above the oh, main doors. I liked the like statues, the last one. though. I think they called them the Brainless Brothers. Oh, for fuck's sake. 
And those were placed in the entrance hall, hidden behind curtains for special occasions. <laughs> what? For a wedding? I mean, what the fuck special occasions? People come in and you just yank the curtain pool. Like, they go, So the new building could hold 200 patients, as well as another 60 in the new criminal department, which was built behind the main hospital. There was also space for them to expand if they had to. On a funny note, Catherine Arnold mentions that because all this construction took place during the Napoleonic War, the Admiralty complained that the new building would interrupt telegraph transmissions between the Admiralty and West Square. So they wanted to place a semaphore on the roof. Semaphore, just for those who who might not know, it's a way of communicating via flag waving. Mm. It's a kind of a visual Morse code. Yeah, a lot of, like, boats use it. (laughs) Boats! But the governors, in a rare moment of clarity, said that this was a terrible idea. And I quote, With weird waving arms, a semaphore would undoubtedly have called up in many a morbid mind the vision of a dread unearthly genie mocking and flouting the victim in its clutches or spelling out to the doomed soul messages of unutterable horror and woe. What?! That's so fucking dramatic. Well, when you got someone like James Tilly Matthews with his heirloom, imagine him seeing people doing secret messages via flag waving on the roof and he'd be like, What the fuck? Stop everything. So the governors were like, this is a bad idea. We shall not partake of the the coded messages. I feel like I'm I'm going to only communicate in semaphore from now on. I think you should. It's going to make the podcast difficult. I'll interpret. Okay, good. (laughs) Jess says, I'm a big doo-doo head. No, I... Let me be your mouthpiece. Philippa! Let me be the prophet to your divine message. You didn't say that. So, good to sign decisions from the governors. And within a year or so, a steam heating system and glazed windows would put an end to the cold. A steam heating system? A steam... It's a steampunk asylum Ooh. now. So, this wasn't all there from the get-go, but they did introduce it quite quickly. And Samuel Took's method of design for asylums had even been adhered to. So, men and women were kept separate. Violent and non-violent patients were separated, also good. Amazing. And they were grouped according to their conditions. Patients were more adequately supervised, their tasks to occupy their minds according to their desires. This is boring now, it's all solved. Everyone was happy. No, I hate this. Well, mostly everyone was happy. Oh dear. George Rose and Edward Wakefield refused to forget the old problems of Bedlam. And until there were some significant staff changes, they weren't going to drop the issue. Wakefield demanded that Haslam and Monroe be sacked. Only once that was done would he wipe the slate clean. Additionally, the hospital was just too damn secretive. One governor, John Atkins, suggested the publication of an annual report to try and work against this habit. And the governors were like, yeah, 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 put that on the to-do list. (laughs) And they didn't do it for 27 years. Then they were like, look, we did it! <laughs> That's how, like, however long we've been alive, mostly. They were just... A little bit. They were so fucking secretive, even yeah. after it came to the point where Bedlam was kind of okay. Yeah. Like, it wasn't much better, but it also wasn't much worse than, like, the scrutinized mental hospitals. They were like, shh, 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 <laughs> silence! The first rule of Mad Club is you don't talk about Mad Club! <laughs> It was just weird. Why were they so secretive? Oh my god, what do they do in Mad Club? They just sit around and talk about conspiracies and shit. Oh my god. Oh, shit. oh my god. Yeah. So, the reformers kept pushing for the sacking of Haslam and Monroe. They published advertisements for new staff in the newspapers going, Jonathan would be a marvellous physician. Harold, great apothecary. And meanwhile, these poor people who had their jobs were like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> like, shit. Open the morning newspaper and be like, ah, ah hmm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Oh. They also pressured the government to not give any more funding to Bedlam until they made the changes. Mm. So ultimately, both men were removed from their positions. This had very little effect on Monroe, aside from hurting his pride. 
He was a very wealthy man who'd profited from his family's line of business. Mm. He had a fortune, a number of houses, his own thriving private practice. And it turned out that what he really cared about was art. Okay. Not, not lunatics. <laughs> In particular, watercolors. Oh, good. So he ended up leaving the medical field altogether and he became a patron to the arts and left behind him trust funds and this impressive collection of watercolors. Oh. The Haslam was ruined. Oh. He didn't have any wealth to fall back on and he'd given his life to Bedlam. He had to auction off his collection of rare medical books to support himself and some oh. of those books were from the medieval period. Oh no. I know. Oh my god. It looked like Bedlam might never again go back to the way things had once been. The new madhouse bill that Rose was trying to pass stipulated that all madhouses should be examined twice a year and the authority that the Bedlam governors had held up until now would finally be broken. But the bill was never passed. Oh. The House of Lords consistently rejected it. Apparently they were like, if people can just report abuse, then you will never have enough rest. People will just go blabbing all over the place. <laughs> they supported the medical institution going, doctors are doctors and they know what we're talking about. Activists, what do they know about human rights? Don't make me laugh. I'm a lord. I don't. I need the Rangoon. <laughs> the Rangoon. You need a crab Rangoon. So the House of Lords consistently rejected the bill. George Rose died in 1818, believing his life's work to be a failure. Oh, I just got a hiccup burp at the same time, oh, and now sympathy. I think I'm dying. I think I'm inside out now. <laughs> Shit. It's possible that the lords were unduly influenced by the medical establishment or by the bedlam governors themselves, who were not above a little bit of lobbying. <laughs> so by the end of all this, bedlam had certainly improved the conditions in which it kept its patients, but it continued to be an unregulated institution. In fact, the bedlam governors were so irritated by the madhouse reformers that in an act of spite, they elected another Monroe to the position of physician. <laughs> Edward Monroe, <laughs> Thomas's son. <laughs> You hate Monroe's? Well, we've found this one. <laughs> we too have backups, Wakefield. We too have backups. <laughs> and then he fainted as soon as he got in the door. <laughs> Some of the governors were part of the madhouse reform movements, however, and they did not like this. So as a compromise, two physicians were hired. The one was a man called George Tuttle, who'd been physician to Westminster Hospital, and Monroe. And to everyone's bewilderment, including the governors, this partnership worked out really well. Edward Monroe relied on Tuttle's greater experience, and he was happy sharing the power. A number of positive reforms were taken on, fewer chains, fewer bleedings, fewer purgatives. Hmm. The physicians were able to visit the hospital more regularly between them and kept detailed notes, which prevented the governors from being able to pretend to be ignorant of what was going on. Hmm. There were a few bumpy patches in Bedlam's future, including the hiring of a phrenologist! Phrenology! <laughs> <laughs> he was also accused of sexual assault. Oh, good. Yay. Historians seem to sympathize with the phrenologist who was hired. Uh -huh. His name was Wright, by the way, sorry. So they say that these could just be rumors. The phrenologist was, Wright was unpopular, and his obsession with dissecting corpses made people think that he was creepy. Especially... <laughs> Because he liked to remove the heads of dead patients and keep them. And when asked what he did with them, he was like, I keep them in trays. Okay. Uh, well, okay. Part of me is like, that's creepy. But part of me is like, yeah, I want it. I want some tray heads. The governors were like, um, yeah, part of me says that's creepy. Yeah. The other part of me says you're fired. <laughs> so... Whether or not the sexual assault is true or not, and I'm not saying it's not true because... Believe her. Yes. Yeah. The creepy head thing got him fired. That's, a, that's big and weird. Yeah. It, it It's not something you can just turn a blind eye to. Yeah. Fraud and embezzlement took place as well, and there were a couple of serious cases. But overall, Bedlam was no longer a place that left its inmates naked and in chains in the cold and damp and dark, so it's not really appropriate for our podcast anymore. Yeah, I suppose it's just like the regular kind of, it's a big business, so fraud and embezzlement is just part mm. of it. 
Every patient had an individual cell. They were well fed. They had pillows and blankets and linen that weren't stolen by the nurses. And if they acted out, they were locked up for a few hours rather than clapped in five million chains. (laughs) In the Dominator. In the Dominator. Well, the nurses looked from their pillow forts. In the decades that followed, Bedlam fought tooth and nail to exclude itself from the need for inspections, and the reformers continued to battle against them. But they only succeeded in 1853, when Bethlehem Hospital was made subject to inspections, 600 years after it had been originally founded. I just feel like if you're fighting to not have inspections, then you're hiding. You know, it's like, you've got something to hide if you don't want people to look at it. The Bedlam governors, they were so fixated on keeping their authority that they had, well, not that they personally, but that the governors had won all those centuries ago. They, were, mm. they didn't want to be subjected to anybody else's rule. And also they knew what was going on behind Six, closed doors. 600 years. That's insane. It's pretty crazy. That's why this took four episodes. <laughs> that is older than the country America. <laughs> <laughs> Two years later, after Bedlam was subjected to the... Criminal Lunatics Act, Madhouse Act, Madhouse Act, there we go. Edward Monroe resigned, and the Monroe dynasty at Bedlam came to an end after 125 years. Wow. The rule of the Bedlam governors came to an end itself after the Second World War. Funding was really tight, and the governors resisted placing Bedlam under the care of the NHS, which was created in 1948. So they merged with Maudsley Hospital, a psychiatric hospital and teaching centre in South London. It moved one more time after the First World War, and it's now located in Monk's Orchard in Kent. And it's still a functioning hospital, 750 years after its creation. It still exists? It still exists. What? They still, they do a lot to help, like, poor people in South London, I think. Yeah. Um, Can't remember, but they are still functioning and they're really good. Wow. Well, I don't know if they're really good. I just don't want to slate them after the last (laughs) four episodes. They've been listening the whole time, like... Oh, we're better though. We're better now. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) But it is a functioning institution that, although it's moved four times, it's the same institution that was founded 750 years ago. Sometimes I I just think about how old Britain is, and it's just kind of crazy how old the shit is that we have. It is. The Bethlehem Hospital that was in St. George's Field in the south of London, mm. that became like the War Museum or something oh, like that. And wow. you can still you can still visit it. It was deemed unfit for human habitation. Oh, yeah. Back, which is why they moved. But yeah, yeah it's mm. War Museum now. Wow. And that... Oh my god. That was Bedlam. It's a journey and I feel better. We've gone through 750... We haven't gone through 750 years. We started in fucking ancient Greece. <laughs> We've gone a long yes. way. Yes. I enjoyed it all. I loved yeah. researching it. It was mm. very interesting. I now know a lot of facts about the treatment of those deemed insane. Mm. But I'm excited to go on to new topics. I'm the same. Like it's been, it's been very good. Really, really good. Well done. Thank you. Yeah, that good, is my thesis shit. that I shall. <laughs> <laughs> yes, to become a historian. I don't know what you need to do to to be declared a historian, I think. Maybe have a degree in history or something. I mean... Maybe we'll get, like, an honorary one for this. I mean, I do have four degrees in history. I am technically qualified! But it's all ancient history. It's fucking ancient history. It doesn't count. It doesn't count if it was more than 500 years ago. Yeah. Why do you have four degrees? Because I spent eight years at university. Why? (laughs) I'm sorry, Jess. (laughs) I'm real sorry. Why did you do that? <laughs> For those who are interested in the books that I read throughout all of this, they have very original titles. Bedlam by Catherine Arnold. Bedlam by Paul Chambers. And then there was Andrew Skull's Madness and Civilization. And also, I didn't get the chance to finish reading this and it wasn't entirely relevant, but there's a book called uh, Customers and Patrons of the Mad Trade, the Management of Lunacy in 18th Century London by Jonathan Andrews and Andrew Skull. Mm. And it's basically the case notes of John Monroe, the second Monroe oh. to run Bedlam. The, oh. the case notes are not so much from Bedlam as from his private practices, but he wrote them. It's oh, fucking wow. cool. Yeah. Also, um, some academic writing on, you know, how they 
how mad doctors thought about the mad and also the perspectives of the patients themselves. Mm. So just not enough space to put that in there. Mm. And like I said, I'm not entirely finished reading it yet, but so far I'm really enjoying it and I recommend it for anybody who wants to maybe learn a bit more. Should we put it on our Goodreads or something? I shall indeed. So if you find the Awful Forever book club on Goodreads, the books that I used will be there. I'll Amazing. put them on there. Great. Yes. So some things are nice sometimes. Uh, sometimes they are. Okay, so recently, um, I don't know if you saw on our Twitter, but I had like a big family thing. But what that meant was that I went back to spend a lot of time with my grandparents who've been going, like the whole family have been going through a difficult time. But I've got to spend a lot more time with my grandparents than I maybe ever have for for years and years. It was just really, really nice. Because like normally you see them just like at events or like Christmas mm -hmm. where you have like that Christmas happy mask on and everything's fine. So this was just like hanging out with my grandma and grandpa, just hearing all the cool stories because <laughs> like they grew up in a cool time. I mean, cool to us, but like it was a difficult time. It was the post during the war and post-war because they're both born in the 30s. So they, they grew up during the war and like being being evacuated and, and all the rationing. <sighs> Like, and like places that because they, my grandma grew up in Sheffield and it was bombed a bit and so like places that were there and then suddenly were not there were they too old to have been child evacuees yeah or they were they? and like plus they didn't come from like a sorry just that I know yeah so like some some of the bigger places were evacuated but I think they were from small smaller places that weren't mm -hmm. so they weren't like evacuees but yeah like just the cool stories and, and just like general things of how they used to live I think like in the last episode I talked about the marmalade men and just getting to talk to them and chat to them a bit more getting to know each other because like I suppose they don't really know me as an adult mm. and I didn't really know them as as much as maybe I should have done. And it's important to get that time in and yeah, exactly. good opportunity to do it. Exactly, yeah. So it was it was really lovely to see spend spend some time with my family, help support through the difficult situation and, and get to know the grandparents a bit more. That is nice. And so my um New Year's resolutions of be a hero mm -hmm. slash be the king. <laughs> I feel like, you know, I came down to to great cost to myself <laughs> but to go down and help. You know? That is very good. So it was nice. It is very nice. I feel like that's one of the, like, there's some things in I sometimes that are a bit too real, and it's like, oh no, this <laughs> no, is uncomfortable. No, go, go back to the toaster you bought. Just say something silly about pork and stuff. Because <laughs> it was really nice. And that's what life is made of. It's mm. made of the silly superficial stuff that makes us happy, and the... And the real talk. And the real stuff that <laughs> makes us fulfilled. Yeah, exactly. Well, on that note, <laughs> so we're not talking about madness anymore. We're not. Now I just need to think about what I want to talk about next. Shit, cults, maybe cults. Oh my god, maybe I want to do so many cults. There's, there's so many that I want to do. Interesting Victorian sex cults that I'm quite interested oh, in. Shit, we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. I want to do the death cults like Jonestown or Amshinrikyo. But for now, I guess it's bye. Bye. Fucking. Bye! Later, losers! <laughs> dum dum dum! <laughs> <laughs> Edit that out! <laughs>